Listener Production. So back in my day, I remember when petrol prices hitting the $1 mark was basically the end of the world. Now it's getting really wild. It feels like your pocket is literally catching fire whenever you stand near the petrol bowser. Fuel prices across our capital cities have hit record highs. The cost has soared from around $1.70 to $2.20 a litre. The pain has spread well beyond the pump into almost everything we buy. Warnings they'll remain high for a long time. So in this episode of The Briefing, are we going to have to get used to paying over $2 a litre for petrol? We're dealing with a major conflict that is affecting, again, one of the largest producers of the world, Russia. So the combination of all those factors, I'd say, has never been seen before in the oil market. Now, this is going to present an interesting problem for the Prime Minister heading into the election. We'll get into that as part of our briefing on petrol prices. Antoinette Latouf, how have you been going at the petrol station? I've been doing this really irrational thing where I'm filling the amount I usually spend at the at the Bowser. Right. Like, not that I'm getting any more petrol. $50, but, please, sir. Yeah, but, I, but I can't bring myself to spend any more. So I may have to call you. I may, I may end up being, being stranded on the side of the road having run out of petrol because I just refuse to fill Is that more. Antoinette on the Anzac Bridge? <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> so you're filling up half your tank? Yes. Hoping they'll go down before we have to fill up the rest? I'm I'm just not sure. I'm just (laughs) taking it a week at a time and hoping for the best. I love that. More on petrol prices in our briefing. It is Wednesday, the 16th of March. Here are today's headlines. A multinational convoy is heading into Ukraine to meet President Zelensky. The Polish, Czech and Slovenian Prime Ministers are travelling to the besieged capital of Kiev in a show of support. So the Czech Prime Minister tweeted, the aim of the visit is to express the European Union's unequivocal support for Ukraine and its freedom and independence. Now, I reckon Zelensky would rather a no-fly zone than a visit. What do you reckon? I think it's a good opportunity to to get who he wants in the room and to... and, and Demonstrate then... why they need one, see? Look up. We're <laughs> exactly. being bombed. Exactly. And look, this comes after President Zelensky warned the Western leaders in a live call overnight that Russia's not going to stop at the Ukraine. We can stop, still stop the killing of people and it will be easier to do it together, stopping the destruction of the democracy and stop it now on our land, because else they will also come to you. So the visit comes despite continued Russian missile attacks on Kiev, killing at least four more people overnight when an apartment building came under attack. Meanwhile, fears are growing that Russia is setting up a pretext so it can deploy chemical and biological weapons. We have seen that they, uh, throughout this crisis, have tried to create different kinds of uh, false flag operations. And now we have seen them accusing Ukraine and also NATO allies uh, uh, producing, developing chemical weapons. And that's an absolute lie. That's Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, there. There have been reports Russia has already been using phosphorus bombs, And what about this woman? What a baller. In the last years, unfortunately, I've been working with Kremlin propaganda on Channel One, and I feel very much ashamed of that. I am very ashamed that I allowed such lies on TV. I allowed the brainwashing of the Russian people. What an amazing confession. So this is the woman who came onto the live news TV program um, holding up a sign that said, No War. And as you heard there, that was a video she released before she did it. Um, basically saying that she worked for Channel One and was part of the propaganda machine. 
such a baller, so brave. I do worry about what's going to to happen to her now. Mm. You know, from what I'm hearing, she could be in prison for up to 15 years. But going back to the Ukrainian presence, I guess, dire warning to Mm. the neighbours, like they're going to come after you. It may sound like a bit of hyperbole, but the conflict has gotten right up to the Polish border. So Mm. it's not unfeasible that this conflict is going to spill over into neighbouring countries. So the Federal Environment Minister has won an appeal in the Federal Court, wait for it, arguing she doesn't have a duty of care to protect young people from the harms of climate change. As to the positive duty of care, the full court is unanimous in the view that the duty should not be imposed on the Minister. That's the Chief Justice James Alsop from uh, the Federal Court there. So call me simplistic, Antoinette, but doesn't it seem counterintuitive for the Environment Minister to be arguing she doesn't need to protect future generations from environmental problems? Look, I will take the opportunity to call you simplistic, but look, the, the, the backstory here is that the original and the initial ruling was made last year after eight teenagers tried to stop a mine expansion in New South Wales, essentially arguing if the government gives this the green light, this has an impact on the future generation. It impacts our life, it impacts our our standard of living, our life chances, and the government should be answerable for that. So the mine expansion actually got approved, but the same ruling um, ruled that the Environment Minister did have a duty of care to protect young people from climate change, but that's what was overruled in the federal court yesterday. Here's the Environment Minister Susan Lee's reaction. Common sense has prevailed in my view and I want to just reassure people that I take my responsibilities under the EPBC Act very seriously. That's Environment Minister Susan Lay there. The Chief Justice James Alsop argued the proposed duty of care meant the court was straying too far into questions of policy. The children are likely to appeal against the decision in the High Court. It does not change the science. It does not put out the fires or drain the floodwaters. This case has always been about young people stepping up. Yeah, and that's one of the teenagers there, Anne Sharma. We covered this story at the time because they were accompanied in court by a guardian who was a nun. Yeah, right. Who was really passionate about climate change. So it's been a really interesting story and it might not be over yet. Melbourne is set to build the country's largest art gallery and it's being compared to the Eiffel Tower. So new plans have been unveiled for the National Gallery of Victoria Contemporary, um, which will be situated on South Bank, and it's set to open in 2028. That's a great way of Melbourne continuing to be the leader and at the forefront of cultural activity and cultural infrastructure. And we know there's a huge market for it. That's the NGV Contemporary Director, Tony Elwood, there. There will be 13,000 square metres of display space and a rooftop terrace with views of Melbourne CBDs. But if you look at the images, Tom, Mm. at first I was like, what? It doesn't look like the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) I I don't get it. Why is it being compared to the Eiffel Tower? Are lots of people going to like propose there? (laughs) Maybe. Well, it's not that it looks like the Eiffel Tower. The idea is that it's set to define Melbourne visually like the Eiffel Tower does to Paris. It's just going to be basically enormous. Mm Mm-hmm. Beautiful, if that's your kind of architecture and therefore iconic for Melbourne. Right. And there has been some criticism about the design and the architecture mm. saying that it's you know an older and conservative idea of architecture. I mean, it looks okay to me. And, you know, I'm <laughs> sure Melbourne will be welcoming, you know, an expanded um, and more prominent art space. 
Tens of millions of people are in lockdown in China as they face their biggest COVID outbreak since the early days of the pandemic. China recorded 3,507 new cases yesterday, and that's double the previous day's total. Yeah, the majority are in the northeast province of Jiling. Um, 24 million people are now banned from leaving the province and travelling within it without notifying police. Um, and in Shenzhen, a city near Hong Kong, um, they've had 48 new cases and locked down 17.5 million people. And Hong Kong, not too far away, still battling a big wave. These numbers don't seem to be included in the China total because they've been running over tens of thousands of cases a day for an outbreak that's been going for well over a month. And, and if you're wondering, you know, why they're still doing lockdowns, China and Hong Kong and Tonga are among some of the only countries in the world that are still pursuing a COVID zero policy. Mm. It'd be interesting um, to see how this pans out and how painful that transition will be. Also, in terms of how it may affect us, um, one of these provinces in particular is known as a technology hub. And so it's probably going to impact supply chains of, you know, things like your laptops and your iPhones. Yeah, it's also going to test China's um, Sinovac vaccine, which hasn't really been tested yet. They've rolled it out to most of the country, but barely anyone's had COVID. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you again next week. Katrina's about to join us again as we talk petrol prices. So a year ago, petrol prices were around $1.40, which is not far off where they've averaged over the last 10 years. (laughs) Now, Katrina Blowers, we're paying over $2, so it is very lucky you have such an efficient Ford Focus. I know. It's times like this that the mighty Ford Focus really comes into its own. (laughs) So this $2 plus price gouge at the Bowser, it really hurts. Like You can feel that. So let's find out how long it will last, what's driving this price increase, and what, if anything, the government should do about it. Roberto Aguilera is an energy economist at Curtin University. Roberto, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. In the last year, fuel prices have gone up from about $1.40 to over $2. How much further do you think they'll go? Well, much of the price rise can be explained by the Ukraine crisis. And while it's become very difficult to predict how that crisis uh, could develop, prices could go up higher if there were to be a material disruption in Russian oil supply. And some buyers of crude oil have started to reject Russian supply, in effect, taking it off the market. Some countries have banned imports like the US, UK, and now Australia. But those are very uh, small quantities. So the price rise we're seeing is due to fear. There's this premium on prices due to fears of further escalation of the conflict, additional sanctions, and even greater oil supply disruptions. So how much of that global supply is actually from Russia? Russia is among the world's largest producers uh, and exporters of crude oil, along with the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. So if more Russian crude were to be removed from the market, it would be bad. Prices would go higher. But most countries, particularly in Europe, who are the biggest importers of Russian crude, they're reluctant to sanction Russian oil directly for fear of harming consumers through higher prices. And Russia itself would hesitate to intentionally withhold supply since it's so highly dependent on the export revenues. You say the conflict in Ukraine is a major factor here. But the price increases started in December, January. So what are those other factors? 
Yeah, it's a good point. Prices were already high even before this conflict broke out. And that's because the oil market was undersupplied. First of all, the world is still recovering from COVID. And with that, GDP growth has exceeded expectations. That pushes oil demand up. Meanwhile, on the supply side, there had been disruptions for many of the important producing regions, including in the Middle East, North Africa, uh, Latin America, Central Asia. There had been some civil unrest in Kazakhstan. So the result of all that was to push prices upwards for crude oil and consequently for petrol. With those COVID supply and demand factors, to summarise it, could you say that during the big slump in oil demand when the world stopped for COVID, that a lot of the suppliers stopped producing as much, but then when the world reopened, it reopened more quickly than expected and there was a big surge in demand that was coming up against a shortfall in supply and that's why we saw that rise in prices? That's a very good summary. So oil demand reacts very quickly to changes in GDP growth. So when the world opened up again, restrictions were relaxed, economic activity resumed, oil consumption rose along with that activity immediately. But the supply side takes longer. It takes longer both to turn off the supply and then to bring it back online. It requires investment. It's technically difficult to restart oil production as well. So is that, I guess, um, the variety of circumstances we've got at play here? I mean, we've got a global pandemic. We've got a major conflict going on. Does this make this particular oil shock different from others that we've had in the past? I'd say it is different. It's a unique set of circumstances that we haven't experienced in the past before. This pandemic was unprecedented, never had the consumption demand for oil pretty much dried up and sent prices plunging, in some cases, to negative levels in the U.S., which means that the producers have to pay somebody to take that oil off of their hands. And then on the supply side, well, we have seen major supply disruptions in the past, in the 1970s, but in this case, we're dealing with a major conflict that is affecting, again, one of the largest producers of the world, Russia. So the combination of all those factors, I'd say, has never been seen before in the oil market. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's unique at the moment is that it's coming at a time of um, high inflation in lots of other goods as well. So that's another tricky factor. Um, It gets very hard for our politicians in Australia who are about to face up to a federal election where the cost of living is going to become a major issue, but really they don't have that much control over it. One of the few things they can control is the fuel excise, which is around 44 cents a litre. Now, that's a tricky one. Back in 2001, John Howard was under pressure, so he eased the pain slightly by stopping the excise being indexed up each year. It took 13 years for that to be undone, and this creates a huge amount of revenue for our government. So what do you think Scott Morrison should do? Well, first of all, as you said, uh, everything is getting more expensive and it's really impossible to get away from oil in our everyday lives. It's used as an input into agriculture, for example, so the prices flow into what we pay at the grocery store. Uh, Also, it's used to make thousands of materials ranging from plastics to electronics to cosmetics and so on. So this becomes a, a tricky issue for the government. 
they have the reasons for being reluctant to cut back on this uh, excise tax. For example, they don't want to encourage excessive driving because they want to control congestion on the roads. They want to reduce emissions in the cities especially. But importantly, yeah, they want to strengthen their own budget to be able to pay for road repairs and infrastructure. But as you said, there's an election coming up and it could be a popular move to give consumers some relief at the fuel pump. But supporters of the tax mostly point to the need for less fuel usage due to environmental reasons. So Australia has an easier time meeting climate commitments. And as they say, it becomes difficult later to reverse a tax cut. It becomes a sensitive topic to later raise taxes again. Yeah, so New Zealand has just announced that they'll have a temporary cut in their fuel excise. What do you reckon? Would three months or so be a good idea just to ease that pain at the Bowser? I think it would be a help. Of course, it depends uh, how much the tax cut uh, ends up being. But overall, tax makes up a significant proportion of what we pay at the fuel pump. Currently, in Australia, it's around a quarter to a third of the total. So if they were to cut back on that, and I've heard for calls to cut back and reduce it, say, by half. So, yeah, it would make a difference to the budgets of consumers. That's the excise plus the GST proportion of that, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on, on what you think is going to happen with fuel prices. So a three-month temporary cut is what they've done in New Zealand. Do you see this supply crunch going on for longer than three months? I mean, what's your projection for the future on petrol prices? Are we going to see them stay over $2 or is this a short-term thing? Well, it looks like for the coming weeks, drivers will just have to deal with it. But despite that near-term price pain, new oil production is still expected within the first half of the year. From most of the major producing countries of the world, this includes the United States with their unconventional shale industry that's expected to come back this year, but also, uh, for example, Latin America, mostly Brazil, from Norway, from the OPEC countries, mostly large Middle East producers who have an agreement in place to steadily raise their monthly production through 2022. Iran is also in OPEC and their exports have been under sanctions that are likely to be overturned soon by the U.S., and then on the demand side, uh, I think GDP growth around the world should slow down a bit. These high prices will also discourage oil consumption. So that means that the market should be soon oversupplied and that would exert that downward pressure on crude prices and ultimately on petrol. That's kind of an alternative view. A lot of analysts are expecting continuous price rises because they are so worried about escalation of the conflict and what it would do to the supply of Russian oil. Yeah, I guess that's the big unknown, isn't it? What's going to happen there? But given everything else, uh, you were saying in coming weeks, so what do you reckon? Have we got to live with this for another month, two months? Well, given what we know today, my analysis shows that these new sources of production will be coming on stream in the second quarter of 2022. So that would mean already in the first half of the year, we could start to see this downward pressure on price and finally some relief for drivers. However, we cannot rule out uh, escalation of the conflict. As I said, it's become really difficult to predict how that could develop. 
Yeah, but you said earlier that Russia only supplies about 10% of the world's oil. So there are so many other countries that could ramp up production. Would it be that hard to make up the shortfall? In an unrealistic scenario where all of the Russian crude goes offline, then yes, it would be difficult for the rest of the world to make that up. But that's unlikely to happen even if much of the Western world starts to ban Russian oil imports, they're likely to find other buyers from uh, other countries, from uh, China, from India, for example. So that crude will find its way onto the market anyway. And anyway, as I said, the major destination for Russian oil is Europe, and they're going to be very reluctant to cut back given that they're so dependent and that they don't want to harm their own people and their economy uh, through higher prices. That was Roberto Aguilera, energy economist at the Curtin University Oil and Gas Innovation Centre. Some interesting thoughts there, Katrina, that our politicians have very little control over oil prices. Yes, as we discussed, they can cut back on the excise, but that comes at a massive cost to the budget. So I reckon we're going to hear a lot of talk about the cost of living, including petrol and all of its flow-on effects to yeah. groceries and transport, but there's so little our governments can actually do about it. Absolutely. And the other thing that it's got me thinking about, just from a purely selfish perspective, mm. we, we've been talking on the briefing about me upgrading my mm. Ford Focus mm. and we've been having a bit of a laugh about that, but it has actually made me think, well, if petrol prices are going to continue to hover around this $2 a litre mark for a while, oh, there's a big unknown over that, maybe I will speed up my purchase of an electric vehicle. And I'm sure many other people are thinking that same way too every time they go to the petrol station. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're going deep on the controversial reality TV slash soapy Byron Bays. Listener.